We've been in the book of Proverbs. It houses the wisdom of God. That's what uh, the concept of Hebrew Proverbs is. Skillfulness in living life, uh, direction for doing it from the giver of life, Almighty God. We've been looking at various topics in the book of Proverbs because it's largely topically arranged. And I want to speak to you about an interesting, I guess somewhat challenging, even controversial topic tonight. I found it at least introduced in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, just one verse and, and lots of words to follow. Proverbs 12, verse 25 is where we will be. This is what it says, anxiety, so that's our topic, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. So we're going to talk about anxiety tonight, and you could tell me later uh, if you think what we're talking about uh, has no place in church. I welcome your uh, feedback and emails and all the rest, uh, but you're here and stuck with it tonight, so I want to address this particular topic, the topic of anxiety. First of all, what is it? What is anxiety? Well, um, I don't know the technical, scientific, precise definition. This is just one that helps me to come to grips with what anxiety is. It's what we feel when we allow our thoughts to pull us into the future. That's anxiety. See, God gives us no grace to be where our bodies ain't. Our bodies are an indication of where we're supposed to be. My body is no longer in the past, therefore I don't want guilt to pull me back there. And my body is not yet in tomorrow, so I don't want anxiety, worry, or concern about tomorrow to try to pull my body out of the present into the future. God gives us no grace to go back into the past, and he gives us no grace to charge on into the future before the future is the present. Our bodies are in the present. That's where our focus, our, our thoughts, our our concentrated efforts have to be in the here and now. Anxiety happens when we allow our thoughts about the future to pull us out of the present into the future. Or when we drag the future into the present. We could kind of confuse the time in which we're in. This is where we are. That's why the Bible says, give us this day all that we need, our daily bread, and trust God for provision tomorrow. So anxiety is what you feel, you and I, that's all of us. When we have allowed our thoughts to drag us into the future, even before our bodies get there. Now this text says that kind of thing, anxiety in a man's heart. See the word heart? Uh, some time ago I mentioned to you that the, in the context, the word really is mind Hebrew doesn't actually have a word for mind, but that's what we're talking about. Not, not the heart, this particular organ. We're talking about the mind. And so anxiety in the mind, anxiety in one's thoughts is the idea. Uh, the text says, weighs it down. Literally, it says, causes a man to be bowed down. Uh, I think if we said uh, uh, overwhelming anxiety in one's thought life causes one to be depressed, brings one down in that way, I, I think we would be accurate. So you see this interplay in this verse between anxiety and depression. I'm certain there are a good number of people here 
who struggle with one or both. That's the way it is. And uh, even the experts today are no longer making so sharp a distinction between the malady of anxiety and the malady of depression. They're simply calling them mood disorders. One drives the other. If you're a subject to anxious thoughts, it causes you to be depressed. And if you're depressed, that's sort of the fuel for anxiety. So I think this verse allows for the conclusion I'm coming to here, anxiety in a man's heart, worrisome thoughts that uh, do not give way to uh, reason, worrisome thoughts causes a person to be depressed. But there's an approach, a remedy for it. It's also contained in that verse. It says, but a good word makes it glad. That's what it says. So do you have fears, uh, concerns, worries, uh, anxieties about something or many things? According to this text, a good word can help. So let me just give you some sample good words from uh, God's word, the best words, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 26. It's a very key passage on the topic of anxiety. Matthew 6, 25 to 26 says, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And this beautiful question, are you not worth more than they? What a good word when we're in the midst of worry and concern and fear and anxiety. Oh God, you care for me. I am not alone in this. I have worth in your eyes. As you provide even for the sparrows in the air, surely you'll provide for me. If you did not withhold for me your best, your only begotten son, surely you'll give me along with him all else that I need to be sustained in life. Folks, that is a good Word. In fact, a good word, what does it mean? Well, it's a, a word that provides encouragement to someone struggling with anxiety. In this context, it's a word that puts courage back into the heart and mind of someone who's being diminished and overcome by anxiety. Here's another really, really good word, because sometimes good words are not just encouragement to fit the situation. They're also direction, even advice. Here's a word of direction when we struggle with anxiety. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You're familiar with this. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. See, God can't say stop doing something, stop being anxious. He provides an alternative to it. Instead of being anxious in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, turn worries into prayer. If you're worrying about it, 
express it to God in prayer. If it's a haunting thought causing you a fear, an undue concern, an anxiety you cannot shake, invite God to be part of the process. Turn it into a petition. Have conversation with God. In that sense, worrisome thoughts are almost an opportunity, an incentive to draw nearer to God, to develop an intimate, personal prayer life with Almighty God. Turn worries into prayers. And then another good word about anxiety, it seems to me, is to, uh, well, it's to memorize Scripture. And I memorize Scripture not out of virtue. I memorize it out of uh, critical need uh, because the battle is for the mind. So it says in Proverbs uh, chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, Watch over your heart. Again, it's talking about the mind, not the heart. Watch over your thought life with all diligence. Why? From it, your thought life, flow the springs of life. Well, like you, I'm subject to anxiety. Uh, anxious thoughts sometimes flood my mind. I need something to take their place. And so for me, it's scripture memory. Because your mind cannot focus on two contrary thoughts at the same time. So I need some kind of offense against the invasion of anxious thoughts. And therefore, I supply my mind with memorized scripture. Like... Uh, Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. See how slow I'm doing this? Because then my mind meditates on it and there's no room for that and anxious thoughts. And I keep going. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. See how slow I'm chewing on the words? Uh, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And then it forces out anxious thoughts and it replaces them with truth from God's word and thoughts drive emotions. And so my whole emotional countenance changes. The mind, the Bible says, set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit, even spiritual truth, is life and peace. So these are good words to offer someone or to internalize yourself when one or you are subject to anxiety. These are, these are good words. Good words, according to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, can help one or you when struggling with anxiety. But, now here's where we get controversial. Not all the time. There are times when anxiety seems to be resistant to good words, our own or even God's good words from Scripture. Now here's where it gets a little controversial, so just let me finish before, uh, before you, you close your mind to what I'm, what I'm sharing with you. One of the reasons it seems to me why some forms of anxiety or depression 
seem not to respond to a good word, an encouraging word, a pep talk, even a verse of Scripture, is that we're not just spiritual beings. We're also emotional and biological beings. And sometimes the biology or physiology of our makeup goes awry. And one of the organs which can be impaired, and when it's impaired, can invite, even perpetuate anxiety or depression, is this organ between our ears called the brain. It is as subject to impairment and disease as is other organs like liver and spleen and kidneys and heart. And we Christians, it seems to me, for all too long have permitted impairment of every organ except this one. We, know, we lay no guilt on someone with high blood pressure, hypoglycemia, kidney disease, heart disease, nothing like that. If we lay anything on them, it's our hands as we encourage them, comfort them, and pray for them. Well, why can't we permit each other, though we be fully saved and in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, to have mental illness? Why can we Christians have physical, biological illness, but why are we not permitted, without guilt and shame, to experience from time to time the throes of mental illness? I told you it would be controversial, and here we are. For instance, if someone has experienced a prolonged period of stress, it's very likely that the stuff in the brain those are called chemicals, neurotransmitters, neurons. One transfers impulses to another neuron through a roadway. That's chemical, liquids. If someone has experienced a prolonged period of stress, the neurotransmitters can actually become flooded. Too many of them could be secreted or diminished. And that impairment of the brain can cause an emotional disturbance like anxiety and depression. So, for instance, if you sit here as an adult and you were, sadly, the victim of horrific abuse, sexual or any other kind, as a child, it's possible that that trauma... Uh, has produced such prolonged woundedness and stress on your system that the God-given, natural, tranquilizing effects of your brain chemistry have been compromised. Therefore, you need help beyond just an encouraging word or even a verse of Scripture. You need help of a medicinal kind or of a counseling kind. Now you say, wait just a second, medicine is not the answer. That's true, it's not. But you can't even talk straight and reason with someone in the throes of emotional disturbance. If you're given to generalized anxiety or clinical depression, uh, we can't even reason together. So a course on a medicine prescribed by a skilled practitioner to restore the balance of neurotransmitters in your brain could then allow you to enter into reasonable dialogue with a trained professional so as to help you along the way. What about a soldier or police officer who experienced 
highly emotionally charged situations in battle or out there on the streets. Sometimes after those horrific events, there remains for those people many, in many cases, post-traumatic stress. After the fact, folks, a good word from Scripture is helpful and necessary, but sometimes not enough. Sometimes the best word to offer someone like that is a word of permission and acceptance, enabling them to seek help of a medicinal or counseling kind. I told you this would be controversial. Anyone who has experienced a period of prolonged stress or even had surgery of various kinds or experienced a major change of life can have unusual and unpredictable episodes of anxiety, even panic, during which times that person's heart is racing, that person feels a tingling sensation in his fingers, he's sweating profusely, he's disoriented, he's having a hard time breathing, he has chest pains, he thinks he's having a heart attack. In fact, he rushes or is rushed to the emergency room only to find out, no, you're not having a heart attack. It's an anxiety attack. It's a panic attack. And you would be shocked to see how common panic attacks and anxiety attacks are even amongst Christians. It could happen. It's a form of anxiety called a panic attack. Not only that, do you notice we inherit certain physical characteristics from our parents? For instance, Sam stood uh, before you and above me just a few moments ago. He inherited uh, his vertical supremacy from his parents. They're tall. I got mine from my vertically challenged Jewish parents, you know what I mean? So just as we inherit certain physical characteristics, uh, we can inherit a certain genetic uh, uh, endowment that causes some of us to have more of a predisposition to mood fluctuations than others. That's the way it is. That's the design of the human makeup. It's not ungodly to study it and to be aware of it. So for one struggling with normal worry, anxiety, and concern, good words like I love this one, 1 Peter 5, 7. It's simple, but it's beautiful. Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares about you. So for many of us, and in most cases, normal worry and anxiety will give way to passages of Scripture like that. But for those of us struggling with different varieties of anxiety, like panic anxiety, or anxiety that's generalized, it's not triggered by a particular life event, it's everything. For people in that category, additional helps are oftentimes needed. Now, I offer a word of caution. For those of you out here who've never experienced anxiety or depression, first of all, I say, wow, that's fantastic. 
So for those of you here who've never experienced any serious bouts of anxiety or depression, for you who are mentally, emotionally stable, oh, really, really wonderful. And for you, you're going to have a very, very hard time relating to the rest of us who do experience anxiety and depression. In fact, because you can't relate to our mood disorders, you may write it off as being invalid and not really there. Could I ask you not to do that? If you do that, you force us to go underground at the very time when we need interaction and conversation. There's lots of things I can't relate to. I can't relate to someone specifically in the throes of cancer as God has seen fit. I'm not subject to it. I may be. At this time, I'm not subject to the throes of cancer. I hope I'm a good listener and comforter and encourager, when I sit across from someone who is in that particular struggle and battle, but I can't really connect emotionally. But perish the thought that I would dismiss the reality of cancer ravaging your body. Don't dismiss the reality of mental illness ravaging the emotional makeup of some of the rest of us. You understand what I'm, what I'm saying? If you do that, you force some of us to think only of suicide as the option. If you have no room for us, <clears throat> why do I say us? Because I struggle with mood disorders, have for years and years and years. I just do. Uh, I used to ask God to remove them. Now I don't. I run to him, I trust him, I see how he can use even these mood disorders. But it's very, very hurtful if you call into question my commitment to Christ, my devotion to him, and all the rest. Don't do that. I don't do that to you. <laughs> don't do that. If you do that, then you force the ones in our midst who are struggling. You know, we become, what does it say? The only army that shoots its own wounded. Don't do that. This is supposed to be a hospital. Now, now here's the deal. If a good word, as this verse in Proverbs says, can be a help to someone, then a non-good word can really, really hurt that person. What's a non-good word when someone is struggling? Well, I can't help but thinking of Job's counselors. You know, the loss he experienced... They had to come up with an explanation for it. And they came up with something, today we call it, in, in theological circles, the doctrine of divine retribution. They don't know that's what they were doing, but they essentially said, Job, if you weren't in some way sinning against God, you would not be experiencing a divine reaction to your sin. You would not have loss. You would not have emotional travail. Everything would be cool. Uh, Job, the problem is yours. If you get to the end of Job, you find out that God was angry with those counselors 
because they misrepresented God. They came up with a simplistic explanation for one of the complex matters of life, and that is the matter of suffering and affliction and all the rest, including emotional affliction. They tried to explain it. They had enough just sitting there listening to Job, even though that was the best thing they could have done, just listen. Instead, they tried to move him out of his pain by coming up with this simplistic notion, Job, you wouldn't be in this mess if you didn't sin. So they, uh, they, they equated all sickness with sin. That's a really, really, that's a really bad word. Now, it's partially true. Listen to me. Everything that plagues us today is in fact due to the sin first committed by our parents, Adam and Eve. It's true. Everything that we struggle with today can be traced back there, Genesis 3. In fact, someone has called it ancient sin. So in that sense... The ancient cause of all that we struggle with today, physical maladies and mental illness, is traceable to first sin, ancient sin. But not all mental abnormalities and struggles uh, can be attributed to what, let's call it, recent sin. Now, there are a good number of people who I think miss this. So if they come upon a fellow Christian struggling with anxiety or depression, they rush quickly to judgment and essentially say, ask God to help you to identify the sin area in your life. Confess it, turn from it, and you'll have peace. See, that's Job's counselors. What happens to those needy people is that they go home and do that very thing. They petition, oh God, show me how I'm letting you down. Show me how I am transgressing. Show me this. Oh, God, I'm ready to confess it. Turn from it. Repent, and then I'll have your peace. But they can't find anything, so they start confessing everything imaginable, only to find they're still struggling with anxiety and depression. And now on top of it, they're left with no other conclusion but that God has irreversibly abandoned them. Now, don't hear me wrong. Some anxiety and depression and emotional travail is indeed due to the commission of recent sin. Doggone it, if you're in the midst of an extramarital affair and you're, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit is going to mess you up. He will make you miserable. Thank God for that. And for you, that specific sin is to be confessed, repented of, and turned from. If you're hooked on internet pornography or gambling or this or that, you're drinking, you're doing whatever the deal is. So I'm not ruling out sin. I'm just saying it doesn't explain all that we struggle with any more than sin is the recent or proximate cause for cancer or liver malfunction or heart disease. It's not true. It's just not true. So when Job's counselors kept their mouths shut, they did good. Since they opened their mouth, they did more, well, they did more harm than, than good. Folks, when we reduce all emotional struggles to one's alleged recent sin, it does things like this. It ends discussion. 
at a time when that struggling person is sorely in need of it. See, someone is struggling with anxiety or depression, and you give them a quick fix. Uh, uh, walk in obedience with God, and it'll all be well. They got nowhere to go. It ends discussion. At a time when, in the process of uh, interacting with a trusted other, professional counselor or normal person, that very process can provide relief to their anxiety and depression. But we just forced it underground by saying it, the only explanation is sin in your life. So it ends discussion. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, when you uh, reduce all emotional struggles to one's alleged recent sin, it causes that person, as I mentioned, to think God has abandoned them. They're looking, they're confessing, they're turning, they're doing everything they possibly could, but they're still in pain. Ah, it must be that God has really abandoned them. Thirdly, uh, when you simplistically equate all suffering with sin, it adds guilt and shame to the one already burdened by depression and anxiety. And once you add guilt and shame to one's struggle with depression and anxiety, that one uh, has an increased probability of committing suicide. Did you know that? Yeah, it does. <clears throat> I don't want to be responsible for driving someone over the edge by heaping upon their struggle uh, guilt and shame. That's unwarranted. Now, I'll tell you something that you're not going to like, but uh, it's true. Christians get anxiety disorders at roughly the same rate as everybody else. It really shouldn't be a surprise. After all, Christians get cancer, heart disease, colds, and flu bugs at about the same rate as everybody else. No one thinks of these things as spiritual failings. Why are we telling our fellow struggling Christians that they are spiritual failures? Now you say, wait a second, isn't Jesus enough? Absolutely. Do you know Jesus delivered us from the penalty of our sin, boom, the moment we accepted Jesus as Savior? That's not a process, that's an event. But the process of getting over, getting through the throes of life, the woundedness of our early life experiences, and all the rest is just that. It's a process. It's just a process. Jesus, in exceptional cases, can deliver one from all that. That's called a miracle. And he does those things. But by definition, that's an exception to the rule. The rule is you go through the process. You go through the process because he sees that there's value in the process. I think the church, without intent, has created a huge amount of unjustified guilt by suggesting that all mental health disorders are the fault of the sufferer. It's not true. And as I say, we're driving people underground. At the time when they need to come out of that closet and get help more than ever. So then, good words can surely help someone struggling with anxiety, and bad words can just as much really hurt someone. And so the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the timeliness and appropriateness of our words. For instance, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Sometime, if you come upon a fellow Christian struggling in some way, the best thing you could do is keep your mouth shut. 
Just be there. I call it a ministry of presence. Don't try to fix that person because you're likely to provide a fix that makes matters worse. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Two Christians can be suffering from anxiety and for entirely different reasons, so you have to slow down and ponder what might be going on. You can't pronounce a conclusion on the anxious experiences of both Christians. They may be entirely different. My mother is going to be if the Lord sees fit, 100 in about a month. And she lives in a place where there are many people in her category, they're elderly people. What I found out is very, very typical about elderly people is they come, many of them, to suffer from anxiety and depression and hallucinations and delusions. If you want to visit my mother who suffers from anxiety and depression and hallucinations and delusions. If you want to visit my mother, keep your mouth shut when you go. If you're going to help her identify her recent sin, which contributed to it, it's not going to help her. I'll tell you what contributed to it. The deterioration of this organ. My mother also can't see well, can't hear well. Her heart's not good. Her liver's not good. Why do you offer comfort and prayer for all those organs? What about this organ? This organ drives the rest, for crying out loud. Proverbs says in chapter 17, verse 28, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. So you come up with something, a struggling Christian, you don't know what to say. That's probably because God didn't give you what to say. So keep your mouth shut. Uh, Proverbs 18, verse 13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Want to hear some good words? Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus gives this grand invitation. Come to me, he says. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So the one struggling from a mood disorder, anxiety, or depression, not attributable to recent sin, but something else, rushes to Jesus. You might not find immediate relief from your mood disorder, but you still find rest in him. You find a divine counselor who says, come to me just as you are. I give you no lectures, no quick sermons. In fact, take my yoke. Yoke yourself to me. Don't worry about the heaviness of it all. My yoke is easy. My load is light. I can carry your burden. You'll find rest for your souls. And even the one whose anxiety and depression is really, really resistant to a verse here or a verse there, even that one can find rest in the presence of Jesus, how? I'll tell you why. The difference between a Christian suffering from anxiety and a non-Christian is that for the Christian, you can know even your anxiety and depression has behind it a good purpose. Mine drives me into Scripture.
drives me into it. Not to prepare for sermons, but to get through the day. <laughs> Mine drives me into fairly constant prayer to Almighty God. Where am I going to go? My struggle with anxiety and depression helps me not to say stupid things to you who struggle similarly. <laughs> so I say now, oh God, thank you for allowing this. Apparently I need the process of wrestling with this. Maybe I wouldn't talk to you as much. Maybe I wouldn't cling to you in scripture as much. And maybe I would be a hurtful person uh, with regard to others who struggle similarly. So, 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 so that's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. For the non-Christian struggling with anxiety, what's the purpose? Who's behind it? Is there a God using all things for the good? No, no, there's no such assurance. But there is that assurance for those of us who are Christians. Folks, the Lord Jesus saved us from sin, but that's not all. He also saved us from despair and hopelessness. Even those of us who struggle uh, with highs and lows in terms of mood fluctuations. <clears throat> there isn't the hopelessness and despair a non-Christian has because we know behind it is an Abba Father who can use all this even for good. He saved us from the penalty of sin, as I mentioned, in an instant, but saving us from the effects of sin. Original sin, ancient sin, <laughs> that takes time. And that process is not going to be resolved until the time when we go to be with the Lord Jesus or he comes to take us first. Then it's over. And then we're there. Then we have arrived. And then we're presented before him, as the Bible says, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. But until that happens, we're engaged in the process. And I think sometimes we, we hurt people when we sell the gospel this way. Accept Jesus Christ and you'll have no problems. It'll be all peaches and cream for you, smooth sailing. But then when that new believer comes into the reality of the throes of life, they, they think, wait a second, I heard from all these spiritual people that this is not supposed to be happening to me. Are you kidding me? Life is really tough. That's why we want to get out of here. We just can't choose the time. We just can't rush it. Listen to this passage I memorized. Not to impress you, although I hope it does. It, but just to be a personal help to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Listen, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. <clears throat> Even our emotional struggles, our struggles with physical maladies and all the rest, can be used by Almighty God to create in us a renewed and new man fit even more for eternity. So my fellow Christians, uh, don't go underground. Feel the permission to make recourse when needed to trained counseling intervention.
we happen to have a really good team of counselors, clinically sound, theologically sound, right across the way, Sagemont Counseling Center. They're licensed, they're trained, they're vetted. Some have been to seminary. They know Greek and Hebrew if you want to be impressed. <laughs> they know the divine counselor. They'll help you with the vertical dimension, whereas a secular counselor will not. But they won't just throw a verse of Scripture at you. They will do that. They'll also help you understand God's design. He made us to be fearfully and wonderfully made. And we're complex. And so sometimes it takes an astute observer of human behavior to see what's really going on. It might be misbehaviors, transgression, sin against Almighty God. Our counselors there will not dilute that message. On the other hand, it might be something else that needs to be looked at. It might be physiology. It might be organic impairment for which there are helps around. And that is no less uh, acceptable to God than memorizing Scripture. I hope you don't feel like there's no recourse for me but to kill myself. Years ago, I was a missionary in Germany. One of the men I just led to Christ and discipled was transitioning back to the States. I helped him hook up with a comrade of mine in ministry. I was with an organization, and we made disciples. That was the thing. I found a stateside contact where my friend could go both to school and continue in his growth process. This man said, I'll mentor your friend more. My friend was invited to live with this man and his wife. And then I got this terrible call from my friend one day, and he told me, that the man who was discipling him came home one night to find his wife. She had hung herself in their apartment. She was forced underground. How could she reveal her emotional struggles without calling into question the reputation of her godly husband? We Christians, not us specifically, I'm really being general here, left her with no option but to hide it, hide it, hide it, until she saw there was no escape from the agony. This was a godly woman, a prayer warrior, a student of the Bible, but there was a chemical process there she could not come to grips with. She did not feel the freedom to visit with a professional, to get some medical help, because, you see, this would call into question in her mind her commitment to the Lord, his commitment to her, and the devotion of her husband to her as a godly. So she felt wrongly. I'm not justifying this at all. She felt she had no option but to take her life. I can tell you ten stories like that. I hope we don't have that kind of story ever to tell about anyone in this place. This is a hospital for the wounded. We will not preach you out of your struggles. Physical, emotional, we'll stand by you. By the way, that's what encouragement means. It means to come alongside. I remember once in the depth of a struggle I had of an emotional kind, a friend said to me, and he was a non-Christian, he said simply this, Stuart, wow, you're going through a lot. That was a good word, and it brought gladness to my 
a soul overwhelmed by anxiety and depression. In those words, Stuart, you're going through a lot. What did he fix? No, 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 no. He validated my emotional struggle. He didn't force it underground. And it lightened the load. Surely we could do even better than a non-Christian. Surely we could say things better than check out the sin in your life. Get it over with. And you'll be over with all your struggles. That kind of quick, quick fix, pie in the sky, Christianity, it, it doesn't stand up according to the facts. I'm a struggling Christian. So are you. The struggle doesn't end upon being regenerated. What ends is alienation from God. We're no longer adversaries of God. We're children. We have a father on whose lap we can run for help in time of need. But the struggles remain. The difference is he could use all those to shape us and help us and make us even more conformed to his image because he can use all things for the good. 